Hey everybody, this is episode 128 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, recording this intro on a Friday. I'm excited about my interview guests today. I've got David Epstein on as well as Alex Hutchinson back on. David, of course, is a journalist and author. He wrote the book The Sports Gene, also was formerly an SI writer as well as a He's currently a ProPublica writer and has a new book out called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist World, which is about the idea that you can be a generalist and train as a generalist over lots of different topics, both in sport and in your career, and that could put you ahead of those who choose to specialize early. And so it's a really interesting book that covers not only this idea of being a generalist versus a specialist, but also how sometimes being a specialist can get you into a view that's too narrow that might limit your potential. And so it's not a running book, but we're going to be talking to David about that. Of course, because I like to have his counterpoints out there, Alex Hutchinson will be joining as well. He's the one that connected me to David. He, of course, is the author of the book Endure has been on my show five times. This is his sixth appearance. He was previously on episode 117 where we could, I did a smorgasbord overview of some of his recent sweat science articles. So if you haven't checked that one out already, go check it out. So Alex will be on to help me ask questions of David as we drill into this topic on range. And I think you'll find that there's some really interesting takeaways for for running training, but then, of course, also for life. A couple of things, though, before we get started, wanted to cover off on a couple of special current events, as well as I had one request for you before I start the interview. First of all, got to give an update on the Chicago Marathon field. Rupp, Galen Rupp, has now declared that he'll be racing Chicago as well as Mo Farah, so they'll go head-to-head in a rematch, of course, Mo won last year convincingly at the end. We also know Jordan Hesse has already joined that field. So this will be Rupp's first marathon back from his Achilles surgery. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes. It'll also be interesting to see how he progresses with perhaps some prep races before this race as he's testing that heel. So we shall see, but it'll be Rupp versus Farah again in Chicago. And then we've also got to talk a little bit about the USATF Distance Classic at Occidental College. It also used to be called the Oxy Meet uh, for, for shorthand. Lots going on at the meet last night. A couple of highlights. First of all, Kate Grace, former guest, as well as Corey McGee, former guest, were in the 800, and Kate ended up winning that. Corey McGee got third in a time, in Kate's, Kate's winning time was 2.02. She said afterwards that her coach encouraged her to go out slow, go out at the back, because she's been primarily doing 1,500-meter training, and then finish strong to try to go for the win, which she was able to secure in that time of 2.02. So that's pretty exciting. There was also... Lots going on in the women's 5,000 with uh, with several athletes getting the Olympic standard there, including Olymp- Olympic or world standard, including Steph Bruce, who was in that field, who got a massive B 
PR in the 5K, running 15.17 to include improve her 5K PR by more than 20 seconds coming off that win at the U.S. Half Championships only a couple of weeks ago. But in that 5K, you actually had Under Armour athletes go 1-2. and two. Rachel Snyder ran 15.06. Aisha Pratt-Lear, who trains with Emma Coburn, ran 15.07. Both of those athletes got the Olympic standard as well as, of course, the world standard. And Rain ran really, really well. Lauren Packett was ended up ended up third. And so really solid, fast times across the board there for the women in the 5K. On the men's side, you had Clayton Murphy coming out, winning the 800, which you might expect. Clayton, of course, is an Olympic medalist in the 800 and is now trains with the Oregon Project. He got first in that race in a time of 146 and change, besting also his teammate, Craig Ingalls, who was in that race as well, who ended up third in the 800. That's, that's probably the biggest highlight on the men's side. Many also were touting the return to form of Laoi Lalang, who, former NCAA champion who has struggled in recent years, trains with the U.S. Army group, and he was back running well to take the win in the 5K in a time of 13.25. So congrats to Laoi. Good to see you back on form. So those are your current events today. Of course, we are approaching the summer track season in earnest with lots of great meets coming up, including Shanghai Diamond League is happening today. As I record this, you've got Prefontaine coming up, and then, of course, the summer season really picks up in June with the U.S. champs and other national championships out there. So time to tune in. If you haven't already tuned in, the track will be heating up for sure. Now, before we jump into my interview really quick, just wanted to quickly put a request out there for you, if you don't mind, to go review the podcast if you like what you've listened to so far in all of these 127 plus episodes. It's helpful if you give those reviews so that others can find the podcast via the various search criteria and the ranking criteria. So helpful for me, also a good way to provide feedback There was one review recently that I saw that I wanted to specifically address because I completely disagree with the the point shared in this review. But this was my this is my only one star review on the podcast out of 214 ratings. And someone left this one in April and the comment says, what's the point? Question mark. What's the point of having a slow runner near Walker on the same pod as an Olympic qualifier and pretend they are the same? And so for that person, I would happily request you not listen to any episodes because guess what? We have very different perspectives on our commonality in this sport. And I believe as a coach, and a podcaster as an athlete myself that we're all connected in this sport regardless of what pace we can run regardless of whether we're elite or back of the pack or middle of the pack or just trying to get a bq regardless of where we fall in the spectrum there is no slow only degrees of fast we're all fighting the same battles we all experiencing experience the same pain struggles challenges and yes 
Some people may be doing it with higher stakes at faster paces, those elite athletes that are doing this for a career. But I think there is more in common with those athletes than there is not with those who might be near the back of the pack. And so to that person who left that review, we just have a different perspective on how this all works. And I think that's part of the challenge our sport has is that there are too many that have this elitist perspective, that there is some somehow a version of the sport for those that are doing it at the elite level and somehow a different version of the sport for everybody else. And that is just completely wrong. And so part of the reason why I have this mission to put out the content I do is to show people that they have more in common with that elite level athlete who's competing at the highest level than they think and that they can by learning their stories learning the things that they go through can be inspired can take their own running to a new level and also realize that they are worthy of the same types of goals the same types of training rigor the same training principles that those at the highest level in the sport might be privy to and so to me we're all in many ways the same and that's a big part of why I do what I do in this sport so there you go but for those that want to drown out the tiny little voice that that was that was that one review please if you don't mind jump on give us a quick review on iTunes I would iTunes I would really appreciate that so with that as an intro I want to jump into my chat with Alex and David again David's author of this book called Range why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist specialist World, and I think it's a really, really fascinating read. So without further ado, let's talk to Alex and David about range. Welcome, David and Alex, to the show. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, too. It's great to be here with both of you. Good to have you both on. It's good to once again be on with you Alex and be the dumbest person on the podcast since <laughs> last time last time we talked it was you and me and Christy Eschwanden and and now we've got David you and me so it's it's kind of the role I'm playing when, when we have conversations which is fine by me <laughs> sounds good well I, I'll play the role of slowest person in the podcast given the last time I ran with you you almost killed me Okay. And so, but also, you know, keeping with tradition, then we also have to talk about my, one of my favorite topics, talking with you and wanted to get David's perspective on, of course, the great Elliot Kipchoge, who just won London, doing exactly what he said he would do after Berlin, which is to run 202 because he hadn't yet. And so I want to talk about that performance and, and then also your perspective. And we'll start with you, Alex, on the new announcement of Breaking 2 2.0. Yeah, so I, I thought Kipchoge's performance in London was really good. Is that, <laughs> I mean, what, what can we say? It, it was it was it was masterful. I yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Um, it, it. You know, it was it was pretty interesting to see him at you know let's say 30 to 35k with two young guns just sitting on him. Um, and I was I was just actually chatting about this with someone on a, on a run uh, like half an hour ago that if I didn't know who any of the characters were, I would have bet a lot of money that one of the two guys sitting on the leaders but would have uh, blown him away in the last, you know, 5k or something. But since it was Kipchoge, uh, I had a feeling he, he, he was under control and yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing to, to watch him do it from the front the way he did. Well, and the way he crossed the line too, I mean, it was just amazing to see him 
just roll straight through the finish line and look like he could have gone another 26.2 at those paces. Yeah, it certainly, you know, it, 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 it didn't look like that was everything that he had in the tank. But what do you think then about breaking 2-2? I know last time we talked, we I think I put to you the proposition of him running Boston or New York as more exciting for me as a next step for him, whereas you were excited about him just running ever faster. So it seems like using that previous conversation as a judge that you would be excited about this second attempt at going under sub two. Yes, but with some reservations. Um, I, I mean, I think we should first say that all we have right now is some vague rumors, basically. We, we don't really know what it's going to be, but if if what the rumors are saying is true, then I'm a little disappointed that they're going to do it in a non-record eligible way. I kind of feel like breaking two was its own thing and they proved a point effectively, even if they didn't go sub two, they proved a point that a human can go sub two under those particular conditions. Now I think it's it's more interesting to me to see him try and take all the learnings from breaking two, except the ones that were not record eligible. So things like optimizing the course, optimizing the timing, optimizing the weather, but not uh, going back to these rotating pacemakers. So I, you know, I, I can see the point that maybe he, he just figures there's, what changes his place in history at this point? Well, he's already run two flat something in non-record eligible conditions. He's already run 201 in record eligible conditions. So maybe if he runs two flat 58 and for a world record, maybe that doesn't change his legacy as much as if he runs 159-59 in the fake conditions. But to me, it's the other way around. I, th- I think he should be trying to do it in record eligible conditions. I think that's a fair point. And I would still be more excited if he were to go run New York personally, <laughs> because it does feel a little bit like we've been here and done that. And yes, if you ran 159.58 right now, that would be exciting in a sense that that milestone would be shattered. But I think, as you said, to do it under the same sort of labyrinth type conditions as before is really maybe not as interesting. What say you, David? Um, I pretty much agree with Alex. I mean, for me, last time around, the most interesting thing was to kind of read the articles that came out of it in some ways, uh, like the things that, that Alex wrote about it. And and it was interesting to see that, you know, as facile as this may sound, that we do know enough about what contributes to marathon performance, that even at that level, you could make a big difference um, by altering some of the normal variables. Uh, that said... You know, as as we do this over and over, I think the the conceit or the the artifice of it becomes a little more obvious. Where like obviously we could roll someone downhill, you know, and they go a marathon in less than two hours. So it's like where where do we draw a line between like what sort of feels sort of reasonable for it to be um, a real sub two? You know, and going back to to Sir Roger Bannister, like he had this very you know curated pacing when he broke four. And obviously that didn't take away from the accomplishment. So what point does it sort of take away from the feel of that barrier? Um, I don't know exactly what that point is, but I'm always more inclined toward a race. Like I I prefer indoor track to outdoor track, um, even though it's constantly slower, just because I like the jostling and the racing and all those sorts of things. And to me, the most impressive thing about Kipchoge is not his two flat and whatever, 25 seconds or whatever it was, or if he breaks two flat, but the fact that he's, I don't know how many marathons does he run like 10 or something like that. And he's got like nine firsts in a second or something like that. That is, if you had asked me if I would live to see someone with that kind of consistency in this race where, um, you have to train a lot. So it's hard to stay healthy where your travel might go poorly. The weather might be terrible. You might just feel bad that day. It's such a capricious event that his consistency 
continued consistency is more what blows me away than than just a fast time. So um, yeah, if he did like a new race, a course that he hasn't run before and wins again, I think that would add more to my amazement than if he runs the one fifty nine fifty nine on a on a curated sort of not record eligible course. For stats, for the stat lovers out there, he has won 10 in a row. He's won 11 out of 12 marathons if you don't count breaking two and 12 out of 13 if you count that as a race. So pretty damn impressive. And, and the, one of the stats I saw after London was that the, I can't, I, I may get this wrong, so please double check me, but the average of his top five marathon times was something ludicrous like 202, 50, 55 or something, and only one or one other or something. It was like under 203, and the average of the top five for the rest of humanity was considerably slower. So that's, I just don't get, you're not supposed to be that consistent in this race. Like <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Like the closest I think we've seen to this would be Paula Radcliffe if you only counted like cool weather marathons where she was kind of unbeatable for a certain stretch of like six or seven. But even months. even then, not, yeah, not 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 such a long stretch. Yeah, that's. I and, just. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like again, I would have I would have predicted that this consistency would have been more unlikely than someone running under two on on you know a loop course. I think. Yeah, I mean, and the, the more usual career pattern is someone like Dennis Cometo who gets good then runs one amazing time 20257 and then is you know traveling around rural china running 216 for appearance fees because he can't reproduce that it's very rare to be able to stay that good for that long and and even just healthy in in the yeah. marathon to just be consistently that healthy you know it's just amazing i think part of it you have to attribute to his yoda like mindset <laughs> my my favorite new kipchogeism from this one came when he was asked what was next for him after the race on race day in london and he said in kenya we we do not chase two rabbits at once <laughs> only one rabbit at once i mean the guy is just full of proverbs I, I i love it and yeah you know running a marathon is like driving a ferrari if you're looking in the rearview mirror you'll you'll cause an accident <laughs> you know I, it's like part on some level, it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. Another level, it's like, oh, that's so deep. That's great. We needed like an like this, like the Ichiro Suzuki, but for for running, you know, where it's like very, very quotable. We we need this. Maybe we can do an update updated version of the quotable runner. Just <laughs> yeah, Ch- chapters eight through eleven. <laughs> Elliot Kipchoge. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, I mean, what what could we attribute to this? I know going to to referencing your book, David, The Sports Gene, where you talk about the Collinton tribe and their their genetic advantages, as well as their prolific results in the marathon. You talk about in your book, The Sports Gene, about their longer legs and their skinny ankles, skinny extremities, essentially contributing to their ability to perform well in this event. Kipchoge is of that tribe, but has obviously taken the performances to a new level. Is it because he has skinnier ankles or is it because he has other elements as well. Well, I, I definitely don't think it's just because he has skinny ankles because like, whether you're from a particular tribe or not, um, elite marathoners have that body. T- like if you look down and you have thick ankles, I'm sorry, but you're, you're not going to win the New York marathon. Um, <laughs> and so it's not, it's not anything that's particular to that tribe. It just happens to be, um, common and at the extremes in that population, more extreme. You know, I I think also I should say, I think I would have stayed away from some of the numbers I used if I were writing the book now, and I would have focused more on 
um, maybe even some of like the youth running, because I think some of the, at least like one in particular, of the numbers I use was probably exaggerated because now we know there's more of a doping issue than, than we thought there was before. Um, I don't think that's, it's pretty easy for me to believe that there are on average a body type that's conducive to elite marathoning and a doping problem has developed there. Um, I don't think that's a zero sum game, but I think certainly he's got, uh, like most of the people he's competing against has physiology that is conducive to running those times. But I don't think you can, this reminds me of the thing that people have been talking about Michael Phelps lately, sort of in the context of the Castor Semenya case about how unusual his body is. He's got these long arms and short legs. And by the way, his arms actually aren't even that long. His wingspan wouldn't even be average compared to his height if he were in the NBA. So it's not like that outlandish, but he's not so unusual compared to other elite swimmers, right? So that's sort of anti for the game at that level. It's not what's necessarily setting him apart from all these other people. And I think that's without knowing Kipchoge's measurements, I'm sure his running economy is great, but um, I don't think that there's some freakish individual aspect of his physiology that is setting him apart from other runners at that level. Uh, So the issue with the Kalenjin tribe, and, and by the way, when we see runners from Uganda doing well, they're they're often in like a subset of the of the Kalenjin tribe. This isn't just like a Kenyan um, thing. Again, they tend to have long proportional limbs with what's called distal elongation, where they have very little weight at the extremities. But that's not by any means restricted to them. Um, it just happens to be something that's that's quite common and in the extremes extreme in that population of people. But I but I think to bring that to bear to explain any one individual. Uh, is is a simplification, and just just to jump in there, you know that is one of the sort of learnings that we can take away from the Breaking Two project because they did a bunch of lab tests on Elliot Kipchoge and about two dozen other uh, very elite marathoners to try and select the three that they would they would pick for the project. And uh, unfortunately, they haven't published that data, so you know I, I and, every, and many other people would love to know exactly what Kipchoge's VO two max and, and lactate threshold and running economy are. Uh, they haven't revealed that. I don't know that they ever will. But one thing I did glean from talking to the, the Nike team is that Kipchoge's lab numbers were not off the charts. Of the three runners they picked, Lelissa de Sissa's numbers were the ones who were like, let's pick this guy because his raw lab numbers, his physiology, the, the sort of the size of the bottle or the size of the engine was off the charts and suggested he could do something really, really special. Uh, Zersene Tedese, the second runner in the project, he you know, he was sort of a no-brainer because he was the world record holder in the half marathon. And he also had was already in the scientific literature as having the best running economy ever measured. Although the, and although that the the number in that publication was has been sort of challenged, the Nike guys were like, yeah, he does have, you know, we can't confirm that or deny that it's the best ever, but he has exceptionally high running economy. For Kipchoge, it was none of the none of the above. It wasn't that his lab test. They weren't they weren't like let's pick Elliot Kipchoge because of his lab tests. In fact, it was he, he sort of got in on the strength of like oh he is the reigning Olympic champion. It's interesting the mention of Tedeschi too. I remember that the the paper like you said I know that number's been been challenged, but that he had the best recorded running economy and you know he he was a cyclist. Like Eritrea had I think a cycling federation for some reason was like their first sports federation. And so cycling became popular there. And he was a cyclist there first and was like not that great and then moved to running and was instantly extremely good, which is sort of interesting because you you might expect that the things that are giving you good running economy may not be as big of an advantage 
when you're cycling. Um, but that's interesting to hear that they backed up his running economy, but that Kipchoge's not off the charts. I mean, I, I wouldn't, that's not a big, Alex, you tell me, but that's not a big surprise to me at that level. Like when we're getting to, you know, I don't think like, a, sure, Usain Bolt's tall, but I don't think a physiologist really can claim to tell you that anything they do can tell you which of the guys on the starting line of an Olympic hundred meters should win really. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the physiologist can tell you who's going to, you know, from a general population, who's most likely to make the Olympics. But once you already filter it down to the people at the Olympics, like you, and you've written about this many times about restriction of range. Once you're talking about the people who've made the Olympics, you can do a month full of lab tests and you're still not going to know who's going to win the race. Only running the race is going to tell you that. Yeah. So I guess, so in some ways I'm not surprised by that in, in Kipchoge. And I think it's sort of in keeping with you know, what we've seen in elite performance, which is you're probably not going to find, you know, with very, with very rare exceptions, um, you know, of, of these few cases of maybe like a weird single gene mutation that causes something strange. You're not going to find like some, which, which again, may be a similar trait to other athletes that it just arises in a more complex way, but you're not going to find some single freakish thing. So I think the, I've just been thinking about this in the context of the Michael Phelps stuff going around, because I think that's really overblown you know, this portrayal of him as like a marine mammal who can't survive on land and is so weird. Like <laughs> he's not that odd compared to other people that he's competing against at that level. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It does raise a point though that ties back to the beginning of your book, David, which is where you're comparing Tiger Woods versus Roger Federer and their and their upbringing in sport. And Tiger, as we all classically know, was the one who was swinging a club at age two and then basically trained to be an elite golfer by his dad from a very, very early age versus Roger Federer, who actually had, even though he had a tennis coach for a mom, he had a much more diverse background in sport and didn't really specialize in tennis until later in life. Both of them ended up at the top of their sport through different paths, one a specialist path, one a a generalist path. In your book, you talk about the reasons for that may be simply because golf is what you call a kind learning environment versus a wicked learning environment that might be tennis, which is more complex in terms of its action. But could it also just be that these two individuals were just destined to be great in their sports, regardless of how they were raised in it? You know, I'm I'm not sure what, how to interpret destined really, because Again, to to take that to running, like, you know, to use our our most famous person in running again would be like a Usain Bolt, right? Um, And certainly I could paint a picture of him as someone who was destined to do the things that he did. At the same time, his favorite sports were cricket and soccer when he was growing up. And had he been born almost anywhere in the world, I think, other than like Jamaica, maybe Trinidad, maybe the Bahamas... I think he doesn't end up on the track, no question about it. And so I think to say destined, um, I think implies, I think we really overestimate the amount of like access to sports that most of the world has. Uh, and I think, um, so, so I, I don't, I don't really think it is destined. I, I think they're they're The particulars of their development does matter. I mean, the tiger, case where he, by the way, says his father never asked him to play. He was the one driving his father crazy to play more. Um, so he certainly, I think, got lucky in finding something that lit his fire very young. Uh, but I think 
there are other potential hymns that just didn't run into that out there. So, so I don't think destined, but I think they won by, by luck of early exposure and won by sampling a bunch of things were both able to find something that fit them really well. So you don't think that if Tiger had been raised in a different way, playing other sports and only found go- uh, only found golf later in life, that he would have ended up the champion that he is? It's possible. I don't really know. So golf is one sport where, because the, the question you're asking me is about my my newer book. This is like the introduction to range, where I call like the right. Roger versus Tiger problem. And wh- I gathered up a bunch of research in different sports looking at whether the Roger path or the tiger path is the typical one for athletes who become elite. And it turns out that it's by far the Roger path where they sample early and delay specialization, gain a kind of breadth of general skills, learn about them, their own abilities and their interests and delay specialization compared to peers who plateau at lower levels. Um, there really is a real dearth of research on golf in this regard. So I think the jury is out on whether early specialization works in golf or not, or is, I think it's definitely not mandatory because we can look at some other players now like Rory McIlroy, you know, who have risen to the pinnacle, who have developed as, you know, maybe what you would say as more well-rounded athletes. Um, I can believe that early specialization does work in golf though, but I think the jury is just out as, as far as the, the scientific evidence, but that th- there's more research in other sports that suggests it's not the best path. It's not the typical path, even while there are you know, as many potential different paths to the top as there are people who are participating. But intuition would say, and you know, the subtitle of your book is why general of range is why generalists triumph in a specialized world. So the intuition of today's world is that specialists do better. And there's a big push in sport, especially in the U S for early specialization as a parent with three kids between six and 10 I can see the insanity of other parents pushing their kids into really elite baseball training and programming and football is already at, at the age of my 10 year old, something that, that parents are pushing their children to really specialize in and get special instruction in. Yeah. Our intuition is that that's better, yeah. but your book books premises that it is not necessarily. Look, I mean, when I lived in Brooklyn until not so long ago, there was a U6 travel soccer team that met at a school right by me. And I don't think that's because there isn't good enough competition in a city of 9 million people for five-year-olds that they have to travel. Um, And I don't think that's because anybody legitimately thinks that them traveling, uh, which just is a waste of their time when they could be doing actual sport development, um, is the best for their long-term development. What I think is that there are adults who have a finance for whom those kids are customers, uh, who have a serious financial interest in wanting to keep them away from other sports because those are their customers, and a serious financial interest in, for example, like the AAU second grade national championships where kids are like one-handed heaving a ball at a 10-foot rim. I think the reason those exist is because it starts a pipeline where if you're not on that team, you can't be on the third grade team. And if you're not on that team, you can't be on the fourth grade team and you have to pay for all these things. And they keep kids in a, in a certain pipeline and the coach becomes the person who can sell them to recruiters. And so I don't think any of this early specialization system in the U.S. is really driven by the idea for the most part, at least, you know, or by any knowledge that it's the best for kids development. It's driven by sort of parental insecurity, um, wanting to give the kids a head start, and also by this enforced um, structure that's looking for customers. And I think in places that have 
taken a little more holistic view, there's been something different. Like there's a great um, book. What's it called? I think like the 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 gold medal project or by Owen Slot anyway about what the UK sport did to you know, help turn around their failing uh, or struggling sports federations. And basically what the whole book comes down to is they diversified the entry pipeline to make sure they were getting people who were later specializers and giving them a chance to switch between sports later than you would expect. That, that's pretty much what most of it boiled down to. And in France, where they just won the World Cup, um, a French kid who's good at soccer probably plays about half as many games as an American kid who's good at soccer. Not only that, but when kids in their development pipeline play a game, the coaches have to stay in a box. They only have a 15-minute period where they're allowed to talk. And one of the guys uh, named Ludovic Debreu, who helped design the system, has this phrase that there's no remote control, which means what you want is the kids doing sort of these open learning activities where they're learning how to problem solve in real time instead of being told how to do technical things, which are so-called closed skills. So if you want to win the 10-year-old championships, you can teach closed skills and how to run plays and, and important technique things, and you'll win the 10-year-old championships. But it turns out that the way to develop the best 20-year-old is not the same way as develop the best 10-year-old. And I think you're seeing some sports bodies in some countries respond to that. But the United States were very kind of balkanized in our approach to sports development, but we're lucky because we have an enormous amount of participation. And so we don't have to optimize development. We can just have a large funnel. Like we have something like 40,000 young adults being supported in serious training in track and field because of our college system. I wonder if the rest of the world combined has that many young adults being supported in serious track and field um, training. And so we don't really have to do things that well because we have such a large talent funnel. So sorry, now I'll get off my soapbox. That was a longer answer than you wanted. <laughs> uh, let me just jump in and build, and build on something David said, which is that uh, about the the problem of balkanization in the sports system. So if you compare uh, something like uh, rugby in the UK, so the people who run sports at the central level, the people who've thought carefully about this, I think most of them would agree with the things that, that David has said about the benefits of late specialization. And so UK rugby, for example, is fairly centralized. And so they were able to implement a policy saying, we're not going to do any streaming or any sort of selection for national programs or anything before the age of 16, at which point kids are, you know, most getting close to physically mature and some of those uneven, you know, some of the, 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 the hidden talents have come out and we can, we can, and kids have had a chance to play different sports and identify what sports they like. And so when you compare that to, I'm, I'm in Canada, so to hockey and the people who run Canadian hockey might think that's a good idea, but each team is its own little empire trying to select the best kids and trying to get them into their pipeline. So there, there's really no centralized way of, of regulating these teams that, as David said, are, are viewing the kids as customers, but even if it's not financial, are, are looking for their, their, their path to, to, to glory in the youth leagues. So there's no way of saying uh, you can't have an elite team at eight because the, these teams are already are, 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 are streaming of their own volition when they pick their players. Well, one of the things I wonder too about Canadian hockey is, you know, one of the problems in early specialization, one of a number, I think, um, I think the pattern of late specialization in future elites shows up for several different reasons. But one, I think, is that the earlier you push specialization or the earlier you push selection, the more likely the coaches are to be selecting based on um, biological maturation and mistaking it for potential. 
Um, so like in the Netherlands in soccer, they, they began not allowing coaches to cut kids out of the pipeline if they hadn't yet reached peak height velocity, you know, science lingo for growth spurt, um, where coaches would say, oh, this kid's not big enough or fast enough. And they'd say, you're not allowed to cut them because you're just judging them, um, you know, based on their, their slower matures. And by the way, the later you go through puberty, the bigger you're likely to be. Um, as we've seen with, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's like dominating the NBA right now, went through puberty after he got drafted, basically. Um, and two of those people that they saved ended up on their national team. And so in hockey in Canada, Canada it has some similarities, I think, to the U.S., where it's, it's, it's marketed so well, which I think is always the number one most important thing for making a country good at sport, is marketing the sport widely and getting a lot of people, um, you know, with a lot of different approaches in the pipeline. But you also see, like, if you look at junior teams and then it only Canadian players in the NHL and the junior teams, you see this very pronounced relative age effect where you see the clustering of birthdays at the beginning of the birth year, because those kids, when they're selected are effectively, um, older than their peers. And that's a big deal when you're seven or eight in terms of your, your physical and motor development. And then that disappears at the NHL level among Canadian pros, which suggests to me that you really are harming your pipeline because you were keeping kids in longer who are essentially selected because of when their birthday was, but then they aren't making it to the top level. Um, so again, I think you can make up for a lot of problems by just having your sport be very popular, but, but it also suggests to me that it could be done better. So what about distance running? I mean, what I was just out of curiosity looking up, you know, three, three stories before this conversation of, distance runners and their development, one being Jordan Assay, who just finished third in Boston. I watched her at the Olympic trials in, in when she was in high school. She was also competing at the Junior Olympics before high school and competing very well in the 1500. I looked up Emily Sisson, who actually was a four-time state champion in cross country in Missouri, so was competing at a high level in running at as a freshman in high school. And of course, we all know Rupp's story, which is that he played soccer, but then was plucked off a soccer field in high school to begin a very specialized development program under the tutelage of Alberto Salazar. So in distance running, and then Kipchoge even himself started with Patrick Sang in middle school, from what I understand, in his long-term running development. So how would these principles apply in the running context? I mean, I don't think there's anything at all wrong with early exposure. In fact, I think it's really, really good. I think there are a couple things going on. One, I think you want some variability in whatever you're doing. Okay. Now running would still be very much on the kind end of the learning spectrum. So I don't think it's um, constrained by the need to learn these anticipatory skills, which I think are better done broadly in so-called attacking sports where you have to judge bodies or you have to judge balls going places and things like that. One of the reasons I still think you see this pattern in um, track, which you still do, is because of the matching, the match searching. So I think most people um, need to cycle through some sports in order to find which is the one they're really good at. And so Galen Rupp did that. I mean, he was in different sports. I, I don't know what Kipchoge did or didn't do um, earlier, but I know plenty of other athletes like Turgot was a volleyball player first. Um, and so I think people get to the top in a million different ways, but th the same as with data in other areas of work that are not sports related, 
giving people a little time to sample um, increases the chance of them optimizing what economists call their match quality, which is the degree of fit between their interests, their abilities, and the work that they do. And you can have lucky matches without ever trying anything else. It just decreases the chances. And, you know, for someone like me who did football, basketball, and baseball and came to track because, like, I broke my arm and I'd take a football season off, and then it turned out to be the thing that I was the best at and the most interested in, um, you know, not, not to compare, you know, obviously I'm not on the level of those other athletes, but but there are other people like that. Like, for every, uh, you know, every Hesse, there's, like, an Andrew Weeding. Um, I just think on the whole you give better chances of people to optimize their match quality if they have a chance to learn about themselves and about the op- their options for what they, they can do and try. I, d- I just want to say that actually reading David's new book, one of the big surprises for me was discovering that he did play football in high school. I, I had no idea. I'm small. <laughs> and, and basketball at a large urban high school. So Impressive. Very impressive. Impressive for a man <laughs> who is 5'6", I believe. Yep. So... If if parents are listening then, and I'm one of them, it seems like the, the case for generalization is both this idea of sampling that you, that you talked about just now, which is that you need to give kids an opportunity to try a bunch of different things so that they can find the thing that uniquely speaks to them. But then there's also the idea that generalization promotes a broader range of skills that can eventually help you in whatever sport you decide to specialize in if that's where you end up. I think that's more true for the anticipatory sports. So, um, again, these are the sports where you have to react. And as you go up up levels, you have to begin to react in ways that are faster than your biology actually allows. So you have to see what's coming before it happens. So you're essentially assessing uh, bodies and, and flying objects in order to figure out what's coming next. And in those cases, I think there's some evidence to suggest that it's kind of like language. So I was going to write a whole chapter in range on language. And then I, the more I got into some of the research on multilingualism, the more I thought some of it was not so good. But the part that I did think was seemed to me to hold up was that people who grew up bilingual are then better able to learn a third language without being told the rules or without getting like formal instruction, even if that language is like a fake linguistic, linguistic system made up by the experimenters. Um, and I think that's a good analogy for some of the pattern in anticipatory sports where playing a variety of them early on starts to teach you how to match a strategy to a type of problem. And that's kind of what you want and to build these general skills. And you will then be able to more quickly learn any of those skills going forward. And, and by the way, it's like a theme that, that runs through range because it's a similar conceptual finding in things like teaching kids math, right? Instead of getting them to do the, you can get them to do the same type of math problem over and over and over again, and they'll get really good at it in front of your eyes. But if you want them to be good in the long run, what you want to do is mix up all these different types of problems. So they'll be frustrated and it'll be hard for them. And instead of learning how to do certain procedures really well, they learn how to match a certain strategy to a certain problem. And they feel like they're not progressing as fast and you, you can't, their measurable progress is not moving as fast. But in the long run, you're setting them up with a much better base for learning future skills. And I think that's a, that's a decent analogy for what we see in the anticipatory um, skill sports. It seems like, though, as a running coach, I think about the fact that it has to have application in running the idea of being a generalist, not because you need anticipatory skills, but because you do need to develop your, your ability to move in three dimensions versus two dimensions, which can improve your 
your injury, your ability to avoid injury potentially, improve your over, overall athleticism that then contributes potentially to your running potential. You know, I'm not an elite runner by any stretch, but I grew up playing soccer, played club volleyball in college, got into running after that. And I think it still works for me today in ways that maybe I can't fully understand. And I also believe that the further I've gotten away from that background in other sports, it's perhaps created challenges challenges for me in my running that creates weak spots that I could perhaps address by by working on some more dynamic movement again. I mean, I do think movement variability is really good. Um, and, and I want to be careful not to like bend the whole world to my range lens and say like, well, that's generalization. Cause that's, that's obviously a challenge for me with that book and with talking about it is like, where do I draw the semantic line between like what has range and what is overly specialized? Um, but I think it's fair to say that within a certain task, movement variability, uh, is really important and variability again is something mixed practice or, or what cognitive psychologists call interleaving, which is like mixing, um, in kind of haphazard order, the different types of things you do is, is one of the principles I think that is good for both physical learning, um, and for, I don't want to say mental learning. I don't know what that means, but for, for things that we associate more as cognitive, uh, skills. So I think that movement variability is important. And, and again, everyone specializes to some degree or another eventually. Right. So it becomes a semantic issue. And I think part of the challenge is, and, and what you're talking about, is how do you maintain the benefits of what I call range, even once you have to specialize to a certain degree? And I, and I think that's what you're talking about. It, it's interesting, Chris, hearing you talk about the idea of, you know, having played volleyball, helping you run. And it's, I, I definitely have that intuitive feeling that I felt like I played basketball pretty seriously in high school. And I felt like as I got away from that and more specialized in running, that's when I started to get more injury prone and stuff. It feels very intuitive to me. And I, I've been sitting here trying to think of like, what is it? How can I articulate why it's important to be moving in other ways? And, and I'm sort of drawing a blank. So I don't, I don't know if it's just a, a sort of a, a self-delusion or whether there is something there that's just hard to articulate or hard to study. But I, I do feel like having some breadth of physical experience translates into a, a more durable and maybe even a faster runner. But I, I can't support that statement in any way. Speaking of durability, some cool data that I saw was from Cirque du Soleil, where they have like amazing physiology data on a huge number of people who perform a huge number of times for many years. And one of the things they they measure their injury rates against Canadian gymnastics. Um, it's a, Cirque du Soleil is a Canadian company, and um, their physiologist let me see some of that. And they they decided to try pilot a program where they would have performers learn the basics of three other types of performers skills. Um, and subjectively what they said is it, it helped with their creativity when they, they weren't going to perform those skills, but it helped them think about like designing new performances. But they also said that it cut their injury rate compared to Canadian gymnastics by like 30%. So then they, they made it like a, you know, a formal part of what they do and incorporated it into the National Circus School from which they draw a lot of their, they draw like from Olympians and also from the National Circus School, um, this forcing performers to learn basics of skills that they are never going to perform just because they find it has this like protective effect against injury. There you go. That proves it. <laughs> there is some data. Although, David's book range also tells us that we can't be overly reliant on the quantitative approach to things. 
in some of the NASA storytelling that you have. But, but I also think that, you know, if we're trying to extrapolate lessons for, for an adult athlete, part of it is we get so concerned that if we depart from the given specialized activity, then we're going to somehow fall behind. And so another message that you bring out in your book range, David, whether it's applicable in this running context or not, is this idea that it's okay to experiment. And if even if that makes you fall behind in your given field, you'll eventually either catch up or get to a higher place because of that delay. No, I think that's true. And again, I don't think anything's true all the time, but when we see things like that, I talk a little bit about some data from um, from the work world that has to do with like when students, college students have to specialize versus if they're given a little more time for experimentation and also about professionals switching jobs. And what you see is when they switch, you're set back because you've lost some specific skills, but the growth rate tends to be higher because you've switched to um, a better match. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think you know, and we're stretching like this, no need to analogize this to, to the stuff in range. But um, I think there are two questions. One is to be the best at X, do you need to do anything other than X? Uh, and I think the answer is yes, or else like we wouldn't even be periodizing our training and varying up our training. We would just do the thing that you have to do all the time. Um, but also I think one of the reasons why coaches are so important and so effective and why I think they could make a difference in every profession. Um, and I think there's a lot of untapped potential is because at a high level, especially coaches can't really tell the athlete how to be better. I think what they can do is sort of walk hand in hand with them while they do a little bit of experimentation or reflect on what's working and what's not and keep zigzagging and triangulating what works best. And so in some ways I sort of see the coach as of course, bringing certain fundamentals, fundamental principles, but also as a partner in that kind of experimentation, as you keep fine tuning and tweaking going forward, because you can't really just tell someone as they're getting better, like what exactly they have to do. I think there has to be some experimentation. And in, in cases, again, where we have like college teams, you can have a certain training program and put everybody on it and accept only the people that survive. And that's one method to do it if you have enough people. Um, but if you're actually have an eye toward making each individual as good as they can be. I think that experiment, you know, that that approach of collective experimentation and reflection is one of the great values that a coach brings to an athlete. You talk about ex having, having a willingness to experiment versus, versus having some faith in a grand plan in the book. And that can apply in a career context, certainly, but I think it can also apply in a, in an athletic context as well you know, with just an example for me personally, I mean, this year I'm dabbling in a little bit of trail running doing my first ultra. And yes, it might delay a pursuit towards a road marathon PR, but I'm not worried about that because not only is it giving me a different mental stimulus, it's also, I think, giving me a different physical stimulus that will hopefully pay back when I come back to the roads. It may or may not, but I think having the patience to be able to experiment in ways like that is an important element of developing as an athlete. Yeah, I think it's important not to view, I think it's easy to view experimentation as just wasteful. 
Um, and I think that would potentially be true if all of us were able to just introspect. One, one of my favorite quotes in, in all of range is from a woman named Herminia Ibarra, who studies like how people change careers and find better fits for themselves. And what she said was, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And since I don't have a job that I, I think about this a lot because I'm trying to think about what to do. And what she meant was that we are sort of all, you know, implicitly we get this, what she calls the true self model, that we should just introspect and know who we are and then go forth confidently and pursue, you know, it's like commencement speech advice, like plan who you're going to be and take the steps confidently toward that. But the fact is what psychological research shows is that we actually learn about ourselves by doing different things and then reflecting on them. So our introspection is constrained by our roster of previous experiences. And so if we were perfect introspectors of all of our abilities and also knew everything that we could try out in the world and everything about it and how we'd fit with it, then maybe we could do that. But that's not the way it is. So I think taking time for experimentation isn't just like a sunk cost. It should be viewed as um, an investment in personal development that will eventually get you to a place where your growth is faster, essentially. Alex, if if you weren't experimenting, we wouldn't have the book Endure, right? <laughs> yeah, well, if I wasn't experimenting, I'd, I'd be in a physics lab somewhere uh, in the dark. Yeah, uh, Alex has a physics PhD, and I have a geology master's, so, you know. <laughs> Sorry, go so ahead. So the, 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 the deterministic path is not always uh, the one you end up on. Yeah, I, I do think that, that experimenting in terms of different events, like you were saying about running trail runs, I think that's another, that, that is a good kind of... Uh, analogy that you know not to push the analogies too far but about the idea of of sampling and first of all to find what event you're best at but you know so i think let's say you're a you're a you know a 5k or a 10k runner it's good to run some 5ks and it's good to run some half marathons just to work on different parts of your quote unquote game but also uh, you know there are plenty of examples of people who think they're a 10k runner until they run their first marathon or perhaps Hmm. in your case who think they're a marathoner until they run their first trail ultra and discover that they they want (laughs) to let their hair grow and uh, you know get switch to the vibrams and and go make make this their life for, for, for for the rest of their career which is exactly what alex recommends by the way i just want to (laughs) exactly I want to go back to this idea of match quality, David, that you mentioned, because you talk about it in the context of people basically finding the right career for them. But you also talk about it in reference to Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist figure skater, in this idea of match quality relative to goals. Yeah. And I wanted to read this quote from the book. You say, in the wider world of work, finding a goal with high match quality in the first place is the great greater challenge and persistence for the sake of persistence can get in the way. And as a coach who has seen runners either bang their head against the walls or potentially get disenchanted by a goal and maybe fall away from running because they were chasing something that for the wrong reasons, that really resonates with me that this idea that you have to pick a goal that really matches you or that really resonates with you as an individual, if you're going to be giving yourself the best chance to get that goal. And I think that, um, you know, I think that goal is something that evolves over time, right? This, this gets at one of the things I discussed, like in sports, goals are still 
easier than in the wider world in some ways. Like one of the things about sports is that some of the goals are very easily defined, but even within it, I think some experimentation is warranted. So we have that, like one of the, the psychological findings I write about is the so-called end of history illusion. This idea that we all, if, if you ask people, they'll say, gosh, I sure changed a lot in the past, but they under, but then they think that they're not going to change so much in the future. So it leads to all these weird findings. Like if you ask people how much they would pay for tickets to see their favorite band 10 years from now, the average is $129. And then if you ask how much they would pay today to see their average band from, uh, how much they would pay today to see their favorite band from 10 years ago, the average is $80 because we underestimate how much our taste will change. And I think that's just a sign that like, as we grow and mature and try new things, our goals and our preferences change. Um, and, and you need to try some different stuff as opposed to just, again, sticking to this sort of canned commencement speech address, which is set the goal first before you know what's out there. Because your goals are, again, they're constrained by your roster of previous experiences. And I thought that, that one of your chapter titles, David, I, I may not get it exactly right, but was something along the lines of the problem with too much grit. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And that really resonated with me because, I mean, I think that's, man, you can you can see how that plays out, like Chris was saying, in, in the running context of, you know, if you're setting a goal, grit is great, but the, you have to be willing to reevaluate when the goal, when, for whatever reason, whether it's because your goals have changed or because you're just, you're not making the progress or you're not doing it right. Be, be not, not just sticking with it for the sake of sticking with it uh, and being willing to, to try something different when, when it's not working or when you're not going in the direction you think you are. And I think that's something that's under acknowledged from all the famous grit studies, which is that they started with people who were in a, had been highly pre-selected for a very narrow short-term goal, right? This was to get through the six-week orientation at West Point or to try to win. They're already in the finals of the National Spelling Bee and just to try to win it. So this was in no way studies that looked at, um, you know, people in situations to which this concept has been extrapolated. They were in situations with very, very narrow, very short-term goals in the most case. And and so I, I don't think anyone would argue that like perseverance is not good, but half the grit score comes for, you know, so-called consistency of interests, like not changing what you're interested in. And and I'm I'm not sure I, I can see why when you're trying to make it through the next six weeks and it's the only thing you're doing and you have no choice, why that's really helpful. But in a, in a broader context, maybe it's not, which is why you see, you know, the, that, that famous study that was done on cadets at West Point, uh, the grittier ones were more likely to make it through the physically and emotionally rigorous six week orientation. And, and almost all of the cadets make it through that actually. Um, but then later on in the actual military, like half of them drop out the, the first day they're allowed to leave the military. So their, their goals do eventually change once it's a more open situation. So in that way, you give us permission to quit in the book range. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, I think um, there's, there's a number of studies in there. One that like Stephen Levitt, the, the Freakonomics economist, looks at you know, whether uh, quitting once you're thinking about doing it is a good thing in terms of changing jobs. Um, there's, I think Seth Godin gives some great advice where he says, not only should you be willing to quit, but you should be so willing that but when you start something, you should even have an idea of the circumstances under which you would for sure quit. But I, th I think the more fruitful approach is, is the one that I describe in the Dark Horse Project, where you shouldn't quit because something is hard, right? But 
I think you should say, here's who I am right now. Here's what I know about myself. Here are my skills. Here are the things I want to learn and try. Here are the opportunities in front of me. This is the best one. And maybe a year from now, I'll change because I might know more about myself or about this activity or something new might come up. Uh, and I don't think you should feel like you've lost your grit because of that. In fact, you've just gained knowledge about yourself in the world. So I want to ask this last question of both of you as we're wrapping up this topic on your book, Range. What, what are the common questions I get as a person who does podcasts is, hey, what running podcasts do you listen to? And generally the answer to that is none because I really only listen to running podcasts when I'm actually doing prep for an interview with somebody I'm interviewing and I want to make sure I don't retread topics that have been retread by everybody else. And so most of the podcasts I listen to are actually from other areas of genius. Recently, I listened to a podcast about with Alex Honnold, which I thought was fascinating about his free solo ascent. That's the stuff that's interesting, interesting to me because it gives me perspectives outside my very narrow world in this running world. But I'm constantly worried about being coming too narrow as as I live in this very closed world that's very running centric. And I'll start with Alex on this question. Where in distance running coaching or distance running broadly, are we missing things or not open enough because we're in such a narrow world? <laughs> That's a very hard question. Um, look, first, I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, I, I really share your a, a very similar dilemma in my own sort of listening and reading. Um, you know, when I was working on Endure, uh, my book that came out last year, I, I, I was almost consciously, not, well, not deliberately, I found myself not reading some of the books that were in that area that I probably should have just that I, in a sense, I almost didn't want to just be reading all the stuff that was in, in the area that I was already in. And I was, I was deliberately reading as, as, as far outside that area as I could for, for just for my own sanity in, in, in some ways. So I, I think it's really hard to, to, uh, to sort of pick a specific area and say, distance runners all need to think about ballet more because ballet knows about movement or, or, you know, uh, whatever the case may be, I, th I think it's a question of just being serendipitous and following interests, and 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 maybe not being too goal directed, not not seeking out an area because it has something to teach you, but seeking out other areas because you're interested in them, and and then letting the connections ar arise as they may, which is a sort of a long way of saying I don't I don't really have a good answer to that, but I th I, I do think, um, in a sense, you risk if you're if you're if you're seeking out other areas specifically because you hope they're going to teach you something, then you've already kind of decided what it is you're looking for as opposed to being open uh, to whatever connections may come. Well, I think that fits pretty well with the final chapter of David's book, right, David? You can't, you can't script the short answers on your range topic. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think Alex is getting at an idea, which is um, you can't be, you have to accept some inefficiency in in this, because and I think there's some power in inefficiency, right? And in at the end of the book, I talk about it in the context of scientific research, where um, it's it's not such a good thing to try to make scientific research too goal directed, because a lot of the most important discoveries come from things that people don't really know they're 
they're looking for necessarily. And that's certainly been the case for me with my projects, right? So I try to get off of Amazon's algorithm sometimes because my brain is not, right? All these algorithms are just analogizing you to someone else it thinks is just like you. Um, but if you're, or many other people that it, that it thinks are just like you, but like maybe you're a unique individual. And I find if I go to a bookstore or a library and I go to a section, I end up getting interested in something very quickly that I had no idea I was interested in. So it's kind of where I go to find, um, interests I didn't know I had. Um, and so I think we just need to give ourselves a little bit of a break when it comes to inefficiency and realize that having sort of an expansive personal search function, as it were, um, actually can be a source of power, even if it, even if you're not quite sure what you're doing at the moment. Like I kept coming across quotes like that from like Chris Nolan, the director, and Eric Larson, the writer, where they would say, between projects, I just need to read widely with no apparent purpose. And that's how they find their next project. Um, and that's, that was in some ways true for me in, in some of the projects that have been, uh, you know, the, the dearest to me professionally in terms of distance running specifically. I mean, again, I, I totally agree with Alex. It's hard to know exactly what to look at. And, and I think basically he, he wrote the book that at one time I wanted to write basically, but I'm glad he did. Cause I don't think I would have done as good a job as he did, um, on Endure. So I think that that's one area. I think everyone really should read that if they, if they haven't, um, but also I'm curious when I think back to like college and, and cross country or to some of the greatest races I've ever seen, like Jason Lezak, when he was on that swimming relay with Michael Phelps and like performed way better than he had the day before and the day after, essentially, like what about that team atmosphere made him a different guy for that one day? And again, I'm way getting into Alex's territory here, but back off. Um, <laughs> I do wonder if there are, yeah, <laughs> I think I endure. Um, but um, I do wonder, I, I think part of the resurgence of American distance running has to do with people getting back into teams. And I do wonder if there's more potential to be tapped in the way that we use peers and teams um, for training and racing, even in individual sport. Uh, and there's a ton of research out there about teams in surgery, teams in the military, where uh, individual actors are you know, largely doing separate things, but at the same time. And, and I wonder if there are things to learn from that literature for what seems like a very individual sport. Let, let me just pick up on what, what David said, because that's a, I, I've been giving a bunch of talks related to endure and, and because saying the same thing over and over again gets boring, I've been trying to add different parts in. So one of the things that I've added into my talk that wasn't in the book was a section on sort of collective dynamics and what happens in a team versus an individual. And so let, let me just say evolutionary anthropology has some fascinating things to say about that. One of my favorite studies that I mentioned a lot is was with the Oxford rowing team about 10 years ago. So it's well known that exercise enhances your pain tolerance. Uh, you do If you do a pain tolerance test, then you exercise, then you do the same pain tolerance test. It'll be higher the second time because you've got all these brain chemicals coursing through your system, whether it's adrenaline or endorphins or whatever. So they had the Oxford rowers come in, do a pain tolerance test, do a workout on a rowing machine, and then do a pain tolerance test. And sure enough, pain tolerance was higher. Then they had the rowers do exactly the same work at, or exactly the same protocol, but instead of being alone in a room on the rowing machine, they were in a room with their teammates, each on rowing machines lined up side by side by side. And the, the increase in pain tolerance was, was about twice as big. So there was something independent of the physiology. There was something about being in the presence of teammates that, that I think that, that changed how their brains were responding to this exercise. And, that, and I think that finding is really sort of familiar to anyone who's ever trained in a team context 
And it, I think there's a lot of interesting things still to be found about that. And so maybe, as David said, that is an interesting area to, to think about for, for people who are uh, training for a goal. I like it. That, that reminds me. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say it reminded me of a study. I don't know if it was ever published, but back for the sports gene, it was a scientist telling me that he was experimenting with arranging athletes like basketball players in different ways before a game. And like, if you arranged a small guy with like a bunch of big guys, if you spent time with a bunch of big guys who had his back before he went out, like his testosterone would grow up and go up and stuff like that. And then he was showing them violent movies because, you know, we think that some of, you know, one purpose of testosterone is to go up when you have to fight essentially. And it, it was just interesting that he was he was experimenting with arranging people in different ways, like before a game or on the sidelines or whatever, to see how that might affect them. And, and the hormone stuff is just a, just a surrogate marker, of course, for the outcome, but it, but it's intriguing. And so, yeah, and there's other stuff with rugby players. Look, there was one study again from evolutionary anthropologists where they had the rugby players do a running test preceded by a warm up that was either alone with their teammates or with their teammates in sync. So all sort of moving together. And there was a sort of stepwise increase in performance. Uh, so there was something about not just being with your teammates, but feeling like you were part of this unit that's all moving together. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we could still think about, right? There's a lot of, a lot of, yeah, a lot of fruitful areas. And these are just the things that are on top of our head. Not, we haven't even done our inefficient <laughs> So, so Chris, we <laughs> recommend that, that you set up some sort of large organization that trains runners and, and, and sends large groups to, to marathons <laughs> around, around the country. <laughs> Think about it. It could, yeah. it, could, it, it could be a thing. We, we, we figured that out 15 years ago. You're, you're, uh, you're well oh. behind me. Um, so, the, but that does sound like a whole new book topic, Alex, if you're looking for, for book topics. Uh, as I like to say, running is only a solo sport if you let it be. Exactly. I do think there's a lot of there's a nice. lot of power. Well there's played. a lot of power to that. David, last topic and question, and this is part curiosity and part also shameless plug of a podcast series that I'm going to be starting very soon with Kara Goucher on clean sport, and we're going to be interviewing a lot of people in that world on the dynamics of doping in sport and how we can make it a cleaner sport. Obviously, you were tied to Kara and Steve Magnus in helping them whistleblow around the Alberta Salazar and Oregon Project, you know, elements of doping or lack thereof, alleged doping, I guess I should say. So what are your perspectives on the state of clean sport and what do we need to do as a sport to try to make a dent in this, in this area. And, and I'm assuming if we're specifically talking about running here yes. because, okay. Cause I was going to say like two of our last four Super Bowl MVPs failed drug tests and were suspended. One of them even got caught trying to bribe the urine collector and like nobody even knows, <laughs> right? So yeah. clean sport. Yes. Generally. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah, that's, that opens um, a whole new can of worms, but yeah, let's start, let's start with distance running. Yeah. So I think, you know, I remember writing about this a number of times at Sports Illustrated and like, no matter what technological advances anti-doping made, it seemed like doping was sort of in lockstep advancement so that one to 2% of tests came back positive. I actually happen to think that the biological passport for all its flaws is a legitimate step forward. And one of the reasons I started thinking that was when I was at ProPublica, 
I wrote this story where WADA's head investigator sort of cleaned his closet and told me a bunch of stuff he was unhappy with. Um, and, and through that reporting, like trying to fact check and things, what he was saying, I found out that one of the reasons that the Russians were cutting that hole in the wall, you know, where they were sneaking the urine samples through was because they were getting popped by the passport. Like they were doing their own testing more often than they thought they would, mm. or they were showing up high on it. So I was kind of like, well, that's funny that they're doing this mouse hole sneaking urine thing, but at the same time, it's kind of a good sign that they feel like they have to do that in some right. ways. Um, that said, obviously, they found other ways to corrupt the process. And and I also think that anti-doping, which was making some strides forward, then took some steps backward. Uh, and and I think that has to do with a change of leadership. And I think it's crazy to have you know an IOC member be the head of the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, so I think we need to do something about that. But I think, I think there's some grounds for hope, right? And I think it's, it's bad when we lose hope because people are testing positive. Like if you think there's doping, in, I think the, the most important correlate of the number of doping cases you have in your sport is how hard you're trying to catch them, not how many people are actually doping. And so I think it should be taken as a good sign that we're catching some more people. And um, even if it seems like we're catching the less sophisticated uh, people and some of the first world doping has maybe moved into these more gray areas. Um, but I think WADA code has been steadily overhauled to allow m more power in intelligence gathering. It doesn't require these analytical positives and also targeted testing based on the passport, because even if someone doesn't fail it, you can see if they're probably doping. Um, and I think combined those strategies, um, especially the intelligence gathering and the targeted testing, um, I think gives some cause for hope that things will be better than they have been before. Not that they will ever be perfect, uh, because I don't think they will be perfect. Um, but I think, I think there's some hope that it can be better. And other than that, I think you kind of take it on a case by case basis. You know, there's deserved skepticism. Um, yet I still find a way to enjoy the sport and yet I'm still the same disappointed, um, I think the targeted testing should also happen with performance profiling, right? Like most of the high profile tests, not all of them, but most of them, if you follow distance running and, you know, your skepticism meter was probably fairly attuned to this, like someone who'd run a number of marathons and all of a sudden drops seven minutes or something, you know, and wins one. Like, I, I think performance profiling should be part of it. Um, there's a great paper by an economist that looked at every baseball player ever who played at least 10 years. And if, if you look at the list of those who are outside two standard deviations outside of normal aging, it's basically like the, the Balco list essentially. Um, and so I think this, this pivot toward intelligence gathering and application and, um, remember when everyone was upset when Tyson Gay got what seemed like a light suspension, but John Drummond got a massive suspension. And so that was a kind of a, a breakthrough moment where a support staff got a huge suspension. And so I think there are things that are happening that are adjusting to the reality of doping, even if with the testing, mostly what we're catching at the moment is still like dumb doping. Like when, when some of these Kenyan runners that have tested positive for nandrolone, like baseball players knew to stop using nandrolone as soon as they had testing because it's, you can test positive for it for like nine months. Hmm. So if, if you're taking nandrolone, like you're, you're not even trying or you just don't know what you're doing. Um, where if you're clever and you're microdosing, it's still harder to catch. But, but I think the, you know, the goal is to use the intelligence gathering in the passport to do targeted testing and hope that that's enough of a deterrent, like any 
any kind of investigative system that uh, lowers doping overall. And, and, and I think that's about the best you can do, and it'll never be perfect. The primary issue I see is the will of the leadership in the IAAF and WADA to actually catch people. That's the area yeah. where I'm most concerned because I do think there's this mythology out there that, well, the the athletes that are cheating are just always ahead of the system. And as you say, that system has caught up quite a bit, but you still have this big gap in will to actually catch people or to publicize you know, when people are caught or actually act on, on, on positive tests because it's bad marketing for the sport. Is there any reason to hope that our leaders in the sport are actually more likely to want to really fight this topic? I don't know. And I think WADA has gone backward in that regard. Um, again, I think there was progress in that regard for a while. Um, and substantial progress. And I think a leadership change caused tremendous conflict of interest. And if you're going to have that conflict, like it's just not going to work well. So I think the structure of, of what a leadership has to be altered, basically. I, I don't think it should be someone whose all their other incentives is not to bring out doping cases. Um, that doesn't make any sense. And so I, so I think the structure should be changed and I'm hopeful. So unlike I've, I've reported on doping more in, in non-running sports than in, than in run, mostly almost exclusively in non-running sports. And, you know, I can tell you when I would interview baseball players, it's like, ah, we don't really think anybody does it. You know, they, in running, it's totally different. Like athletes want other athletes to be caught. And I think in many cases, they're the loudest voices actually. And maybe that's because it's a zero sum sport, or maybe it's just part of the ethic of the sport, whatever the case, I hope that some of those athletes will attempt to get into leadership themselves, because I think that can make a huge difference. Yes. If they're allowed. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, I think they, I, I think and hope they will. I mean, I think there's a generation of media savvy runners who are either recently ended their careers or late in their careers. Um, who are concerned about the survival of the sport, rightly so. Um, and, and I hope some of them will do what people in other areas of the world are doing where they're saying like, Hey, maybe I didn't want to run for office, but I, I feel it's an important thing to do now. And so, you know, they're going to get more involved in that kind of the, the civic engagement, so to speak for their sport. Well, we could talk about this probably for another hour. We won't, but maybe I'll have to get you on the little series with Kara. As we wrap it up, quickly give us the details on when people can get your book and what are the best ways to find info on it. Um, it's out May 28th, and uh, there's some descriptions of it and things on davidepstein.com. And then I assume you can buy it anywhere books are sold. So, Oh, hopefully. Yeah, so. <laughs> we'll check it out. It was a really, really interesting read, and I appreciate you sending me a review copy to check it out. And then also, of course, being on the podcast. Really, really good discussion. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Alex, as always, for jumping in as well. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thanks for including me. Talk to you later, guys. So there you go. Alex and David, everyone. I would definitely go check out this book, Range. Thanks, of course, for, to those two for joining me. And thanks to you guys for listening. As always, you can check me out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.